my guest today is Dan Heath. So Dan is a senior fellow at Duke University's Case Center, which supports entrepreneurs who are fighting for social good. And he's also the co-author of a series of mega best-selling books, Made to Stick, Switch, Decisive, The Power of Moments. And he co-wrote those with his brother, Chip. They've kind of come to be known as the Heath Brothers. Collectively, they have sold over 3 million copies that have been translated into 30-something languages. Funny enough, Dan and Chip actually have a pretty large age gap between them. And it was the decision to start writing together later in life that really deepened their relationship and brought them together with that sense of brotherhood. But recently, Dan did something really unusual. He wrote his latest book, Upstream, The Quest to Solve Problems Before They Happen, as a solo effort. We explore this decision and also dive deep into some of the key ideas from his earlier books before landing on the big idea in Upstream, which is all about how to solve problems in a very different way and at a very different point than most people focus on. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I want to bounce around with you a little bit because I have been uh, reading you and Chip and now in most recently, you alone, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm curious about also um, since Made to Stick came out. Also, just a, a little bit curious about your decision to focus on what you focus on. 
I mean, it's funny, you know, like I mentioned when we first started as, as a video series, I sat down with Dan Ariely and kind of asked him a similar question, like why the obsession with why people do what they do? And he had a very specific tie-in. You know, he immediately related it back to when he was 18 in the burn ward in hospital in Israel and starting to get really curious about why certain people um, who he knew had run out of their morphine allocations were given saline by the nurse without being told and were responding to it. And that was pretty pivotal in his fascination with the stories we tell ourselves and the way that we behave. I'm, I'm curious if there's any kind of similar sort of inciting incident or origin story for you. No, no. I think Dan's story makes a, a whole lot more sense than ours. And in a way, ours was the product of serendipity. I mean, so the backstory was Chip had written some articles about uh, some research he was doing on the marketplace of ideas. This was pre-Made to Stick. And in particular, he'd been researching what made urban legends stick with people, you know, mm. with all these crazy stories of the Kentucky fried rat and, you know, yeah, the sp spider. Bubble and, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so he'd written up some of his research in a publication called the SSIR, Stanford Social Innovation Review. And an editor at Random House named Ben Lunen happened to see it and called him up and said, hey, was really interested in this stuff about sticky ideas. You know, is there is there more here? And so anyway, sort of opened the door to Chip submitting a book proposal. And then eventually Chip roped me in. I'm more of the writer between the two of us. And and so it was just like life gave us this incredible opportunity that neither of us ever imagined would come. Uh, and I think the, the only uh, kind of thing that we can credit ourselves for is saying yes when that opportunity was presented. Had you guys collaborated on anything substantial before then, or was that the first thing where you kind of went all in? I mean, obviously you're brothers, so you've been doing stuff, but you know, like sort of saying we, we are all in on this like pretty substantial project. We had, I mean, we're 10 years apart. So right. when, when we were growing up, I mean, he was out of the house to college by the time I was eight. So we didn't have a very tight relationship growing up, but we got to know each other pretty well right when I was graduating from college. And we actually worked on a couple of business ideas together when I was kind of fumbling about to figure out what I was going to do for a career. One of which was, was I think, the right idea, but we were just the wrong people to execute on it, which was the, the kind of agent technology that's now routine on Amazon and Netflix, where if you like this, you'll like this other thing that's similar. We were working on something like that back in you know 1995. So our timing was right, but unfortunately, neither one of us had any idea what we were doing. But So, so we worked on a couple of things like that where we had ideas and we would, uh, he was doing it in moonlighting fashion and I was doing it in hopes of avoiding the regular workforce. <laughs> and so I feel like our relationship was really formed as a collaborative relationship, maybe even more so than like a traditional brotherly relationship. Yeah, that's pretty wild, actually. I mean, do, do you ever do you ever pause for a moment and wonder about the nature, what the nature of your relationship as as brothers would be now? Had you never decided to both say yes to that first professional project? The the agent thing, or you mean the 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 book? Well, I guess the agent thing, and then eventually the books, um, and this. Yeah, because I guess in, in a way, one led to the other. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to imagine us just picking it up as full-grown adults. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to think about. I mean, we we were so far apart in age that th there was just no natural reason for us to grow close, and and neither one of us are are, are very good at you know, picking up the phone just to uh, catch up on things. I think if it wasn't for for writing and for books, we'd probably talk 
three or four times a year. And instead, you know, we've been weekly collaborators for, for a decade plus. So it, it's, it's transformed everything, having this, this stuff to work on. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. When mate, so mate to stick was the first major project. And that was the book that just kind of dropped into his lap. And then he brought you in when that came out. I mean, that was huge. That made a, an absolutely giant splash. Did you guys have any sense, you know, you you now have a string of four, you know, like very well selling New York times bestsellers out together, but I'm, all, I'm, I'm curious when that very first thing dropped, did you have any sense for what was about to happen before it happened? We had no idea. I mean, it was it was just completely out of left field. I mean, obviously, we were, we took pride in the book. We loved how it came out, but but we were also very realistic. I mean, we thought, you know, there's a lot of good books in the world, uh, and it'll come out and it'll sell fifty copies, thirty eight of which are to family members, and you know, we'll go back to our lives. It was just it was a hobby. It was just something fun to do. And I think the first time we started to kind of feel like, hey, something's going on here is, you know, the fall, it came out in early January, 2007. And then the fall prior, we started to get like a level of media interest that we never imagined, like Time Magazine, back when it was a magazine, flew down to Texas for Christmas and like shot cheesy pictures of us, like covered in duct tape. And then the week the book came out, we were on the Today Show, which was one of the most terrifying experiences in my life. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we, we just completely hit the lotto. I mean, we really did it. I think if it had been released another year or a different time, it, it probably would have gone differently, but we just, we released the right book at the right moment. And it opened up a, a lot of doors. We were flabbergasted. It's amazing. I mean, that's such an interesting point also, because I'm sure people have asked you over the years, as, as you guys have seemed to repeat the phenomenon of, you know, creating well-selling books that, that hit and, and, you know, and I've been asked this and I've, and I've thought about it a lot also, you know, how, is there any repeatable formula to creating a phenomenon? And, and I've landed in an area where I, I do believe there are some elements that are repeatable, but then there are some, um, like you said, you know, like the timing, you can't control whether you drop something that just happens to speak to the zeitgeist until you're in the middle of the zeitgeist and it happens, you know, and if it's off by six months this way or that way, it's just, I'm, I'm fascinated by this notion of trying to time the creation of a phenomenon. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I've just never seen anybody that's been able to make that a consistent science because I don't think it can be. No, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's, it's like the old William Goldman, the screenwriter from Hollywood who said, nobody knows anything uh, about which movies are going to sell and which aren't. And I, I think the same is true for books and, and really probably for any media for that matter, unless you're Taylor Swift or something. I mean, in my mind, the kind of model that's in my head is, is a, about a third of it you can control. And it's important to control that third because that's what you own. And, and that third is, did you invest in a good product? Did you do your work? Did you, uh, in, in the book world, did you come up with a good cover and a good title? And, um, you know, did, do you have an audience in mind that it's going to help and on and on and on? But probably two thirds, I mean, no joke, that's what's in my head is two thirds of it is out of your control. And it's just timing or luck or, you know, who else had a book coming out that week? You know, Jessica Simpson comes out with a diet book that crushes your your your, uh, your oxygen for the first week or who knows what. Of course, you're not speaking from per personal experience at all there, right? <laughs> it leaves a scar. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, um, Jessica Simpson. <laughs> 
Um, it's kind of funny also because because make to stick was fundamentally. I mean, if you think about it, actually in this frame, it was kind of about that third to a certain extent. You know that yeah, okay, exactly. So what yeah. what can you do to take an idea or a concept or something and craft it in a way where when it goes out into the world, it's just people are like they they hear it once or they experience it once, they remember it for life and they can't stop telling people about it. I mean, I, this is 14 years later and you know, it's one of the few book covers that I can sit here and describe, you know, to you because it was so, it just, it jumped, it, you know, the cover itself did what the content of the book promised. And it was, you know, it was powerful on a lot of different levels. Where, There's actually a whole backstory behind that cover. So just for listeners, the, yeah, yeah. You, you may have seen this book. It's, it's like a obnoxious day glow orange color, like a Halloween orange with a strip of duct tape that looks surprisingly real, like as though someone just tore out a piece of duct tape and stuck it on the cover. And that's the cover of this book made to stick. And uh, my guess is probably 20% of Americans would recognize this cover and 0% would recognize my name or Chip's name. It's just, uh, it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And I wish I could show you some of the, um, the, the covers that, that came out of the design process, because I mean, publishing is, it's, it's a volume business. You know, the, those poor folks are launching a dozen or more books a month and they just don't have time to obsess about any one. And of course your book, you're obsessing about a hundred percent of the time. And so, you know, when the artist got around to designing the made to stick cover, they were just like, okay, what's, what's sticky. Okay. Um, uh, scotch tape, let's, let's run with that. So there were like some scotch tape covers and there were a bunch of post-it note covers, you know, it's a business sort of book. And so that kind of made sense, but but honestly, what makes post-it notes valuable is that they're not that sticky. You know, that's the whole point is you can move them from place to place and they don't stay. And so we, we just fought tooth and nail. And as first time authors, we had zero power. So we were just right. kind of begging and pleading. And, and we were just determined to get duct tape on that cover. <laughs> we just went to the mat for duct tape. And, and so anyhow, I'm glad we did because it, it seemed to strike a chord. It's like, hey, listen, you can do anything you want. But there's one thing that has to be there. There's got to be some duct tape because it's right. just it has all these, especially in America. We, we learned later that that in other countries, it doesn't have the same kind of uh, MacGyverish overtones yeah. as it does here. But, you know, you can fix anything with duct tape. And that's sort of the spirit of the book is whether you've got ideas to make your biology class better or to sell your business plan to investors or you're trying to get your colleagues excited about a memo at work. You know, there there are ways to to make those ideas stickier and more, more practical. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it and I loved it. And, um, and that was really, it touched off this series of collaborations. I mean, you, you move from there. It was really, it feels like it was every couple of years, switch comes out a couple of years after that, which is all about really behavior change. You know, mm -hmm. how do you actually, how do you change the things in your life and your work, even, you know, things that are positive and constructive and you say you want to change, but most people don't, you know, you drop into, Decisive came after that, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. It's really about better choices, you know? So you're sort of like picking off one at a time, these sort of like singular things that people are trying to work on about themselves in order to, um, to, to live better lives functionally. Then the power of moments drops after that. Curious because it was the first book also where, well, actually it wasn't, but it was hands down by a, at least 25% the longest title you've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those four words. We were, right. we were pushing the limits of right. that, that capacity. Was pretty aggressive. Right <laughs> it was, you're right. The inclusion um, of those articles. I mean, prepositions, yeah. we really branched out. And and that was, 
that I, I want to actually talk a little bit about because the so it's that's fundamentally a book about why certain moments leave us changed, why they affect us so deeply and so profoundly. And that has been a deep fascination of mine for my entire adult life. I was actually a, a club DJ in college and mm. I learned really quickly that being behind the tables, I could control the energetic and social dynamic of hundreds of people for four to five hours oh, wow. based on the choices that I was making. And yeah. I could, and I could manipulate the entire dynamic if I wanted to. But I also realized that there were certain things that you could do that would create, you know, what Durkheim described as collective effervescence, mm -hmm. where there's this transcendent collective moment where, you know, like many become one and, and there's a, there's this feeling like you are leaving the present moment in time. And so I was fascinated by the way that you sort of deconstructed four elements of these moments. I'm curious what your curiosity was about these in the first place. You know, this one had a, um, a relatively underwhelming origin story as well, but it, it was something I, I remember specifically because there was a moment in time when it popped out and it actually popped out of, we were procrastinating work on another book. Uh, we were together, which is rare for us because he's on the West Coast and I'm on the East Coast and we were together for Christmas. We were in my dad's office. We often kind of hole up there work while the rest of the family is having fun. And we were talking about a, another book topic that we'd been working on for probably six months. And it was one of those things where we were just getting to the point where we'd invested a real good chunk of time, but it, it was kind of clear, even though neither one of us would say it, that we weren't that jazzed about it. But it, it also felt painful to flush it because so much, you know, if you've ever been a part of a project like that, where it's like, you've come too far to quit, but you don't really want to keep going either. And so I think in an effort to just delay work on that, we started talking about moments and, and neither one of us can really remember where the topic came from, but we started talking about, uh, at that time we were talking in terms of defining moments and what makes a defining moment. And all these examples came to mind, you know, ranging from politics, these kind of bizarre stories that take on popular significance, like George Bush Sr. during his campaign against uh, Bill Clinton. He was just mocked for, for purportedly not understanding a UPC scanner in a grocery store. And of course, there's a whole lot more to the story. He wasn't actually as mystified as he seemed. But anyway, it kind of took on this, this symbolic uh, uh, status of, of how out of touch he was. And then, you know, that weird thing where Howard Dean just screams at a rally. Like, he's just excited for Pete's sake. But people act like it was the scream of a madman. And it, and it sort of uh, uh, eventually seemed to auger his his exit from the race and so we were talking about well what are these moments and then we started talking about the business equivalents where you know you go to disney world and you take a photo by the castle and and in memory it comes to stand for something that is much cooler and more fun than it actually was when you were there with the crowds and the uh, the sweat and the lines and he had heard uh, what turned out to be an apocryphal story about bmws where uh, th th they supposedly hired acoustic engineers to make sure that when you fire up the car, you get like a very satisfying, like growl, like, vroom, you know, just a meaty, uh, you know, driving energy sort of sound. And, and so we just started this feverish brainstorming about this idea of moments and coming at it from different perspectives. And, and do you control these moments? Can you control these moments or, or do they just happen? And, and we just benefit from the ones that happen to bubble up successfully and, and, and what bodies of research 
tie into this that we might consult for more insight and, and on and on and on. And we you know, go on like this for probably an hour. And it was like, we knew instantly that was the, that was the new book. And, and we, we had no remorse at all about ditching the old book. And so we come out to our family where they're all sitting in the living room. We're like, guess what? Got a new book topic. And they all have this kind of palpable sense of relief on their faces because <laughs> uh, apparently they all hated the old topic and were just too <laughs> polite to tell us. So, so that was where moments came from. Uh, that's, I, I love that. It is, it is amazing though, right? It's the sunk cost fallacy, right? You're sort of like, you're so far into a project, you're so invested in it, whether it's time, money, energy, love. And even if it's telling you, you know, eh, this just isn't the thing. You hit a point where you're just like, but how can I walk away from yeah. that? You know, and so many bad decisions are made from that place rather than, and, and I wonder if the thing that you experienced, if, if that happened to more people, if you created the space, even serendipitously for something that actually was calling you much more directly to pop up, it would just make it a lot easier to walk away from that. I, I wonder, yeah. Actually, I, I wonder if that's true or not. I mean, for you guys, clearly the answer was yes, but. Yeah, it's hard to know what, what lesson to take from that. I think um, for me, it reminds me years and years ago, and I can't even remember the context, but this, this little slogan just stuck with me. A reader told us a story that she said she had changed things in her life uh, according to the following phrase that I think it was in the context of when do you say yes to things and maybe saying yes to too many things. And, and her slogan was, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And, and I think that was, that was maybe the moral of this story for us is that you shouldn't try to talk yourself into a book. I mean, there's probably other things in life you should try to talk yourself into, but you know, investing years of your life in a book, that's something that's gotta be a hell yes. And, and moments thankfully was a hell yes. Yeah. I love that. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? 
for me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me, and it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. I remember talking to uh, an author a couple years back who, who shared a similar metric. He said before he said yes to writing a book, he would always assume it was going to take two to three years to research and write it. And before he said yes, he had to truly believe that the process of researching and writing the book would transform him, not mm. just the people that he was writing for. And if he didn't believe that, he just wouldn't. It, it wasn't enough for him to say, I'm going to give two to three years of my life to this. I love that. That's, That's pretty cool. Yeah. When it, in that book, you talk about these, these things, elevation, insight, pride, connection, one of the things that actually really stayed with me was this thing, the peak end rule, which you kind of referenced, um, but not directly in, when you're talking about Disney, which is we, we are weird beasts, right? In that we don't judge or recall how you know, uh, an experience made us feel based on the, the, you know, the cumulative um, moments of this entire thing. It's sort of like we kind of forget most of it and, and reflect on um, how awesome it was based on a much smaller slice of it. Exactly right. And, and in fact, I just experienced this. In early February, we went to Disney World for my daughter's fourth birthday. I mean, we, we timed it well. About four weeks later, you know, the pandemic hit. And, and I'll tell you, as a parent, I mean, albeit a, a somewhat uh, skeptical parent, uh, and battle-hardened parent, it, it's not that great to go to Disney World. It's just not. It's hot. There's lines everywhere. Everything's overpriced. You're, you're walking all day. Your kids are irritable half the time because they're overstimulated. But, and, and this is where the, the, the academic research, research comes in, the experience of going to Disney World is very different in the moment than it is in your memory. 
and I've experienced this now because I look back already. I mean, it's barely two months have gone by and I already look back with this kind of uh, romantic glow. And uh, literally this morning, my daughter and I were just like playing through some videos of some of the rides and looking at the photos and it looked amazing. And, and what psychologists tell us about this is that when we talk about the memories that we have of our experiences, we tend to dramatically oversample some parts of the experience. So, you know, our, our memories are not like videotapes where we just cue them up and watch the Disney World experience. They dissolve and, and they dissolve and leave us with little snippets or scenes from what we experienced. And psychologists know that we tend to remember two kinds of moments disproportionately. The, the first is what they call peak moments, which are the most positive moments in an experience. So for us, you know, it was some of the rides, like my daughter's in that age where she, she wants to be on the spinning teacup and go as fast as we can without vomiting, you know, and, uh, and she's also in a princess stage. So all of the time she got to meet a couple of the Disney princesses. Those are the peak moments. And then there's the ending of our experiences. You know, you talked about DJing. One thing I had, I was always curious about, and until I got in this research, I never really understood was, you think about a great concert you went to. I was often curious why do concerts always seem to kind of stumble out of the gate? You know, it's like the band would come out, people are really psyched, and then they would play like a song from their new album or something that nobody's that into. But but they they understand that what's important is not the beginning, it's the ending. And and so there's always just a fantastic climax to the show. And I think that relates to this psychology research as well. And so anyway, the the kind of overall takeaway from this research is to say something that's probably all of us have experienced, but maybe we never really realized, which is uh, there are some moments in life that matter a thousand times more than others. They're, they're more powerful. They're more emotional. They're more memorable. And, and if you catch on to that, what you realize is we can also be practical about that, that we can be thoughtful about creating more memories for ourselves or for our families, or in some cases for our customers. And so that's kind of the launching platform for the book is, can we be more thoughtful about designing experiences so that they have more of these, these peak moments? Yeah, I love that. It, it just, I'm constantly looking at that and looking at ways to create them. And it was interesting just to have clearer language around both to sort of like look back at what had worked and what had hadn't worked as the person who sort of was helping to create the container and to sort of say, oh, like, yes, you know, like I can see why this worked and I can see why this didn't work. And I can see so so as a DJ, work. I mean, I'm curious, like if you were going to, this is sort of a geeky question, but if you were going to yeah. map out like the energy of the crowd over time, like uh, I imagine the end is a big deal, but, but like, what does it look like in the middle? Is, is there like a, a middle of the show peak and then you let people get a breather before you build for the grand finale or like, what does it look like? Yeah. You know, it's sort of like a series of, uh, so I rock climbed for a little while and there was a, a term called false peaks where, you know, you kind of like, you, you felt like you were coming up over this summit and you're like, yeah, I made it. And then you just climb over the edge and you realize there's a much bigger summit, like right in front of you. <laughs> and then you go to the next one. You're like, yes, I'm And then, so it's sort of like this wave of increasing peaks and troughs, you know, where, and then you finally, you know, you have the, 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 the biggest moment, which generally tends to be fairly close to the end of the night. And then you got to bring everybody down. So they're, mm -hmm. they're sort of like in a, in a, in a quieter place. And the last song was all like, we, I, I can tell you what the last song every time I played was, you know, for years that we took people off the dance floor with. And 
it was all really intentional. And then what was in, the song? It was Forever Young, which has been remade a whole bunch these days. But that wow. was it, it was this really chill groove. And back then we worked by, you know, we, we had vinyl. It was all vinyl. Mm -hmm. And we worked by beats per minute. So we would control the energy by mixing in, mixing up the beats and then mixing down the beats. So mm -hmm. I can tell you, like, I can tell you the beats per minute of most of the top songs in the 80s because you would just have them memorized and where to drop mixes into each other. So you control it by literally controlling the beats. And like, and if most people are dancing on the beat, you know, you're literally controlling the physical movements of hundreds of people on a dance floor for hours. Amazing. Um, by doing that. So it's really wild. I mean, it's really. Do you just get faster over the course of the night or is it more subtle than that? No, you have to kind of go up and down and up okay. and down. But, but each peak is a little bit higher and a little okay. bit higher. <laughs> and also, you know, like, you know, if you're doing it in a club, that also tends to match the, um, the relative, how do I say this? The relative accumulation of substance and, and its influence. <laughs> <laughs> because people become much more, you know, like, you know, less constrained and restrained over time. So. Yeah, Disney would probably be a lot better too on ecstasy. Yeah. <laughs> Not, you know, from what I hear, people who have, may have done that. But, um, yeah, and that kind of brings us also to your the most recent book, which is really fascinating and talking about being of the moment in a lot of ways also. Um, so Upstream, which is out, um, I guess, just last month. Curious also, because this is, the, this is your fifth book, but it's mm -hmm. also your first that you didn't do with Chip. What, what's up with that? Yeah, good question. So... It's a very simple answer. Basically, we uh, released the Power Moments back in fall 2017, and and Chip was just feeling like he kind of wanted a breather. I mean, it's, mm. it's it's a lot of work, and and Chip, to his credit, has more interest than I do. I for me, it's all about writing and speaking and teaching. And Chip does a lot of stuff. He's an angel investor. He's involved with uh, Google X, which is their moonshot factory, and so he's got a lot going on. He didn't want to dive back into the full-time author thing right away. And, and I was chomping at the bit and actually had this topic upstream that had been in the back of my head since 2009. I mean, that, that was the first time I opened a file with the title upstream and Microsoft Word and started accumulating notes. No kidding. I mean, so uh, it had been almost a decade at the point when I decided I, I got to do this. It's just, you can't have something tickling your brain for a decade and not do something with it you know, back to our earlier conversation about is this, is this topic good enough to keep me engaged for a few years? I already knew that. And, uh, and the origin back in 2009, like where the word upstream came from was this parable that I had heard that is pretty well known in public health, but not so much outside. And it goes like this, that you and a friend are sitting on the side of, of a river, you're having a picnic. And right about the time you've laid down your picnic blanket, you're about to have a meal you hear a shout from the direction of the river and you look back and there's a child in the river kind of thrashing about as if drowning and you both instinctively dive in the river and you fish out the kid, you bring them to shore. And just as your nerves are starting to settle a bit, you hear another shout. Now it's another child in the river thrashing about. And so you go back in, you get them, you bring them to the river bank and, and then it's two more kids. And so you're, you're in the water, you're rescuing kids, you're out, you're back in, it never seems to subside. And then you see your friend swimming to shore and stepping out as though to leave you alone. And you say, hey, where are you going? I've got all these kids to save. I can't do it alone. And your friend says, I'm going to go upstream and tackle the guy who's throwing all these kids in the river. 
And that was the origin of this upstream book when I heard that story. And I, we can talk about the, the next couple of things I ran into that convinced me this had some legs in a second. But I just love the vision of that, that, that so often in our lives, in our work, we can get trapped in these cycles of reacting, reacting, reacting to things. And we put out fires and we respond to emergencies. And that taxes our, uh, our capacity our wherewithal so much that we never get around to solving the problems that led to these emergencies in the first place. And so that's the, that's the origin of upstream. Yes. So since you teased, there were a couple of other things that made you go all in. What, what else happened? Well, I had this conversation is probably within a couple of months of, of starting this file with a deputy chief of police in a, in a Canadian city. And we were talking about something totally different. And he happened to just throw out this thought experiment that, that I immediately said, aha, he said, imagine that you've got two police officers and one of them goes downtown during the morning commute hours and, and stations herself at this one intersection that is chaotic where a lot of accidents happen. And just by being a visible presence at that intersection, she slows people down. She makes them a little bit more cautious and she prevents accidents from happening. And then a second officer goes to a different part of downtown where there is a prohibited right turn signal and she hides around the corner. And whenever drivers sneakily make that prohibited right turn, she, she jumps out, gives them a ticket. And the deputy chief said, which of these officers do you think did more to protect the public safety? And he said, indisputably, it's the first, right? She stopped accidents from happening. She may have actually saved lives, but if you ask which officer is going to get promoted, which officer is going to be praised? Which officer is going to be rewarded? It's the second one because she comes back with this stack full of tickets that are the evidence that she, quote unquote, succeeded. And meanwhile, that first officer, if you think about it, how does she prove that she did anything? You know, there was a guy driving to work that morning who crossed through that intersection. And in the alternate reality where she wasn't there, he would have been in an accident. He would have gone to the hospital. But he doesn't know. She doesn't know that she helped him. I mean, the best you can hope for is to keep such careful data from this intersection where maybe on a chart you could see, hey, before we stationed an officer there, accidents were at X and now it's X minus something. But, but even in that situation where you can see the data that shows you may have accomplished something, you still don't know who you helped. They're, they're invisible. Uh, and so there's a kind of maddening ambiguity about this upstream work that that even though it's it's critical work, it's difficult to establish. Hey, did you accomplish anything? If so, how can you prove it? And and who exactly did you help? It's very very different from downstream work. You know, fishing kids out of a river is very tangible and leads itself easily to her, uh, heroism in a way that upstream work doesn't. Yeah, it's so interesting that you use that word heroism because that was exactly what was in my mind when I was thinking about this idea um, because on the one hand, people are often rewarded for you know, you know, perceived heroism. And, but if, and, and, and it, even reflecting on our conversation about moments, a lot, a lot of defining moments involve heroism. But if you were to solve problems upstream, you know, I wonder if that, that then removes the need for heroism in a lot of different parts of life and work and business and society. And 
and there's this weird disincentive to do it. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. And this was kind of what just leaped out of the research and hit me at some point is that I didn't really see this coming, but, but upstream versus downstream is really about distinguishing different kinds of heroism. And the kind that we're familiar with is the downstream kind, you know, the firefighters who put out the burning flames or the lifeguard that fishes the drowning child out of the pool or whatever. But, you know, as I say in the book, the need for heroism is usually evidence of systems failure. You know, something went wrong that shouldn't have gone wrong, and that yielded the need for a hero. But meanwhile, there's a whole nother set of people, much quieter, who don't save the day, but, but try to keep the day from needing to be saved. So you think about uh, firefighters putting out a burning building, you know, it's easy to see who the heroes are. And, and, and let me be clear, I'm not like de demeaning or dismissing heroes. Of course, if my house were on fire, I, I damn sure want the firefighters to come and be the hero. That, that's not the point. The point is that, that we shift so much of our attention there that we forget, hey, there were a lot of ways to prevent this emergency from ever coming about, you know, but, but it's more diffuse. Because if you ask, whose job is it to put out the fire? The answer is the firefighters. If you ask, whose job is it to keep a fire from ever breaking out? Ooh, well, all of a sudden, that's partly the homeowner's job and, and partly the people who built the home's job and partly the people who wrote the building codes. And, and all of a sudden, it gets very abstract. And, and there's no concrete ownership. And, and so you get into these interesting issues where even though most of us would surely vote for a world where problems never manifest, you know, rather than having to, to deal with them as emergencies, there are all these obstacles in our way to try to push upstream. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33 inch all terrain tires and multi terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's a question that's sort of like lingering in my head that I want to ask you, but before we actually get to that question, I think it'd be interesting to to sort of dive into a couple of different ways that this concept ends up manifesting some of the interesting stories and examples that you share. Education is one place that we see this in a really big way. Mm -hmm. And um, you speak to a kind of a fascinating example of this in the context of uh, Chicago public schools. Chicago Public Schools back in 1998 had a graduation rate of 52%. I mean, just shocking, right? That that as a high schooler in Chicago, you had basically a coin flips chance of graduating from high school. And if you put yourself in the shoes of maybe a, a teacher or an administrator who wanted to change that, boy, this was a heavy lift. I mean, this is one of the biggest districts in the country. We're talking about 300,000 plus students. That's like one of the top 50 cities in the United States. The budget of the district is $6 billion, which is the same as the entire city of Seattle. I mean, what are you going to do as one assistant principal or one teacher? And this brings me to what, what may be my favorite quote that, that came out of my research for this book. A guy named Paul Batalden, who's a healthcare expert, said, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And I think what's so powerful about that quote, and, and I hope it sticks in your head the way it's stuck in mine, is it just reframes the discussion. So if you look at Chicago Public Schools, what, what that quote instantly tells you is we're not failing half of our students because people aren't trying hard enough or because people don't care enough. You know, it's not the kind of thing where just turning up the volume on enthusiasm is going to graduate more students, what we have to realize is somehow we've unwittingly created a system that is optimized to fail half the students. And when you come at it from that lens, you start realizing things. Like what they realized, for instance, was, you know, late 90s, early aughts, this was kind of the uh, tough on discipline era, zero tolerance. And so they had a standing policy of kids got in trouble. You know, one, one expert I talked to said in, in that era, if a couple of kids shoved each other in the hallway, they would get slapped at the two-week suspension, that they were doled out like candy. What we now know from the research is if you take a kid who's kind of at risk and you kick them out of school for two weeks, what happens? They never make it up. They, they never get back to where they were. They come back, they're lost, they end up failing classes. And so they realize that, you know, back to that systems quote, they realize that parts of their system were actually sabotaging their own students. The second thing that happened was some academics, including uh, Elaine Allensworth, who's, who's done amazing work on this problem, figured out that you could predict in the ninth grade who was likely to graduate and who was likely to drop out uh, with 80% accuracy. And so it was like this door opened for them where for the first time they had a kind of uh, smoke detector for, for dropouts. And four years early, which gave them the hope that maybe they could ch change the student's trajectory. And so... What happened was, you know, armed with this uh, ninth grade metric, which they called freshman on track. Uh, and by the way, the constituents of this metric were, did the student pass five full year course credits? 
And did the student avoid failing more than one core course, like English, math, science? You, you could fail one semester and you were okay, but if you failed two, that seemed to be like a threshold for, for serious trouble. Notice what's missing there. Like we might have predicted that income would have something to do with predicting graduation rates or race or performance in K through eight, certainly. Wouldn't we have thought that, well, if you're an A student in eighth grade, you're in good shape. And if you're an F student, you're not. It wasn't that simple. There, there was some kind of of transformation that happened in the ninth grade where even students who performed badly in the eighth grade, if they could be kept on track in the ninth grade, they were in pretty good shape for graduation. The, my favorite part of this story is that, and, and this is how they eventually began to move the needle in a serious way. They formed what they called freshman success teams where all of the faculty would come together, biology teachers, English, math, PE coaches, the counselor, they would all get together and meet maybe once or twice a month. And they would go student by student to look at who was off track by that, that uh, freshman on track metric I was talking about, like who was in most danger of not uh, passing that metric. And they would talk about them as, as human beings. They say, okay, Michael, how did he do last week? Was he here every day? We knew uh, last time we met, he was struggling in math. Did we get him some extra help? Yeah. Okay, great. What about Keisha? Well, we figured out Keisha has this thing where she has to take her younger sister to elementary school every morning. And so she's always showing up late, but unfortunately that's math class first period. So if she's going to be late every day, we need to really switch her into PE first period. Cause then at least if she fails something, it'll be PE and not a core course. And, and that was the texture of change that it happened student by student, school by school. And over a period of years, magic starts to happen. Kids start coming to school more because they're paying more attention to uh, attendance. They start passing more classes. That freshman on track metric goes up. And then four years later, when those kids who had been kept on track hit senior year, they start graduating in higher numbers, just like they had predicted. Last year, the graduation rate was up to something like 78%. I mean, we're talking about 25 plus percentage points in a district of just unimaginable scale. And I, there's so much built in that story that I, I love. It's like it has so many of the clues of how to do upstream work. And if anybody listening to this has a problem in their business or in their life that, that you've been agonizing about that's taken a lot of time, I hope this story gives you a lot of hope because if we can move the needle to that extent in a district that big with that much complexity, I don't think there's many problems we can't solve. Yeah, I mean, if you can take something like that, that that is such an incredible, it's an astonishing outcome. And, you know, it's funny, when I first started thinking about this, I was like, oh, this is the difference between reactive versus proactive. But it's really, it's really not. You know, it's, it's about where in the point of breakdown are you choosing to intervene? And, and it's interesting how it, it looks really different in each different, in, in every kind of problem. I mean, so if we reflect on what we were talking about before, you know, the people were you know, getting credit for excellent classroom management, for removing the problems um, so that everybody else could learn for, you know, and we think about how you get rewarded and promoted within the context of an education system, mm -hmm. sort of like the, the way that it was traditionally. And then we, we see, okay, so a bunch of people have decided to innovate and see if we can actually solve differently in a more upstream way. Did the, and, and it worked. So part of my curiosity is, 
did the system also change to reward people to solve in that way? Because that's a huge sort of cultural change within a, a massive educational system also to make and not easy to do. It was a massive cultural change. And, and I mean, it, it really spoke to the heart of, of the identity of many of these folks. Like if you're, if you're a teacher in a high school in CPS, I mean, your old mental model was I'm here to, to teach these students and to assess them. You know, it's my job to present good lessons, to deliver evaluations, to score people, to let people know how they're doing. But in that model, if a student is failing, it's the student's problem. But in this new model where you say, hey, we have an obligation as a district to do a better job graduating these students, that's on us. We're going to own that. Well, that means if a student is failing your class, it's both of your problems. You have to get invested. You have to try to do some, some problem solving to figure out what's going on here. And you can't just detach yourself from that. And, and I think that's powerful. It's also difficult, right? Because it, it means you have to kind of change your model of, of what you stand for and, and what's admirable work. And that's the kind of, of slow but powerful cultural change that, that allows a district like CPS to succeed. And so, you know, it took a long time, right? This wasn't just like a one semester project. It took a decade plus. Uh, but now all those same things that made this a slow change have locked in in favor of the students, right? Because that same inertia you had to fight initially, now that inertia is in the favor of a system that graduates 80% of its students. It's like you've rebuilt the machine in a powerful way. And, and, and that's, that's the kind of, uh, of insight that I think helps us when we think about, you know, problems ranging from societal problems like homelessness to, to more mundane problems like customer satisfaction at work, is if we can think about things in terms of the system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets, it arms us to think upstream about, you know, all of the variables involved and not just get lost in that cycle of reacting to things once they go wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's so powerful if you think about that. And then if you go from there and you go really micro into the context of one person living a better life, you know, we can apply this exact same principle. So mm -hmm. there, you know, there's nothing, I, I wrote a book called How to Live a Good Life a couple of years back. And one of the things I said in the, in the introduction was effectively, there's been no new fundamental wisdom here for thousands of years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, pro the problem isn't information. You know, there, there are a handful of core things that we all know to do. The challenge is we, we don't do them. And I wonder if, you know, in the context of, you know, exercising, of eating better, of doing all the different things that we need, you know, we kind of know that we want to do and we should do, but we don't solve for them effectively. We just kind of blow them up. If we can apply this same concept of, well, you know, how do we solve upstream for the day-to-day -day failures that are taking us away from health and vitality and connection and living a better life. Well, here's, here's kind of a, a trivial example of that. I talked to a guy named Rich Marisa who, um, who was married and, you know, I guess every couple has their thing that they bicker about. And his thing with his wife was the hallway light. So he would go in and out of the house a lot, often to take the, the dog out and he'd flip the hallway light on, go out, he'd come back in. And he'd always forget to turn the hallway light off and that bugged his wife. And so that was their little thing that they bickered about. And then Rich realizes one day like, Hey, I can fix this. And so he goes to Home Depot and buys like a $15, what they call a light switch timer, where it actually has these little buttons that say five minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. 
And so now when he goes outside, he can just press the, the 15 minute button and he comes back outside. And even if he forgets, the light still turns itself off. And what I love about that is it's such a, it's such a corny story, but if you think about it, this is real stuff. I mean, to, to eliminate uh, a source of bickering for a couple for the rest of their marriage, you know, because of, you know, 10 minutes to run to Home Depot and screw in the plate. I mean, that's the kind of thing that we miss because of the way our psychology works, where, you know, because we're always kind of scrambling to react to what happened an hour ago or last week, you know, it's like we, we starve ourselves of the resources that we would need to anticipate what's going to be bugging us next week. And often the fixes for those things can be surprisingly simple if we just have, you know, kind of the awareness and, and the, the breath to, to take a moment and deal with them. So what you're telling me is that the person who invents a hinge for kitchen cabinets that automatically closes the doors after. Oh my God. Are you like that? That's (laughs) that's what drives my wife crazy. I don't, I don't know why I do that. I just, it it is not intentional. It's just like, (laughs) I, I guess there's some part of me that is just sufficiently lazy to think after I've extracted what I need from the cabinet, there's no reason to, you know, exert further effort to close it. Yeah. But it, it is so funny when you think about, you know, okay, so, so, is there an upstream way to essentially stop this problem from happening before it happens so it doesn't repeat itself all day, every day, you know, like it, in perpetuity? For so many things, um, even in your personal life, there are probably relatively easy, if not accessible answers. But if we're not asking that question, we just never even consider it. And I think it's also, um, I mean, there's always like a short-term, long-term dynamic here, yeah. you know, as a father, you know, there's, there's little problems that recur again and again, you know, there's always like a, you're always a hair's breadth from a meltdown over getting shoes and socks on or, you know, things like that. And, and in the moment, you know, there's like an easy way and a right way. And the easy way is usually like one quarter of the time of the right way, you know? And so in the moment, the easy way is always the right choice. It's faster. But then you know, the error in judgment is you, you then do the easy way 500 times in a row when you could have just solved it had you incurred, you know, the 4X penalty up front. And so that's the kind of, it, it's like um, payday loans, right? It's, it, you know, you can, you can get your money right now, which can help you pay the bills. But then, you know, you just incur more and more debt over the long run. And, and that's the sort of dynamic that I think that, that our brains are, are really ill-suited for. Yeah, so agree. And and it kind of brings up the issue of, um, this is funny because it, it brings us full circle to that conversation that kicked off Good Life Project back in the video days with Dan Ariely, which is around compliance, which is that it's really hard for us to invest the energy in addressing things when we're not sort of presently aware of the pain mm. of we're, we're feeling. And, and I think we're all living through this in this moment right now. And it also ties into this I think in the bigger context of um, what Nassim Taleb you know, would describe as black swan events, things where they're massive, they're disruptive. In theory, we don't see them coming, but I'm not as sure that we don't see them coming. It's just that we know that there's a microscopic possibility of them happening. And if they happen, it would be catastrophic. But the the experience of the felt experience of the pain that it might bring so distant and so remote that we don't have the internal motivation to reach upstream to try and invest any level of energy or time or money, let alone a massive amount of energy, time or money to solve something 
when it's at that level. Well said. And and I think you see this again and again and again, you know, with uh, with Katrina, there, there's a story in the book, which I was never aware of, of about a year before Katrina hit, there was a simulation done in New Orleans of a massive hurricane hitting New Orleans and the consequences that it would it would uh, it would cause. And all the right people came together, all the right federal agencies, all the right city and state agencies. They got together. They did this. This simulation it was called Hurricane Pam. And I'm telling you, they had it nailed. I mean, the, the the dimensions of the storm, its consequences were eerily similar to what would happen for real a year later. And so that's the perfect kind of upstream work, right? We're, we're conceptualizing the right potential problem. They knew that a major hurricane hitting that area because of the geography would be a big, big deal. They got together the right people. Well, here's the thing. This was intended to be the first meeting of, of several to happen over the next year or two so that people could get really prepared. And Hurricane Pam was a huge hit. They made a lot of progress. And then some reporters who wrote a book called Disaster said that the FEMA decided to opt out to cancel the rest of these installments because they balked at the travel costs, which were $15,000. And then it turns out after Katrina hit about you know, 50 or $60 billion were spent rebuilding the Gulf Coast in the aftermath of that. And, and this is not quite fair. I mean, it doesn't matter how much they prepared, Katrina still would have hit and it still would have caused a huge, huge amount of damage. But I think the point is that, that there's this weird shift in, in, in ownership between downstream and upstream, where once Katrina wipes out New Orleans, there's no one that would question the need to rebuild it. I mean, we, we open up the purse strings, we get down there, we, we do what we need to do to get things back to normal. But before the fact, when we think about how do we get ready for something like this, even a $15,000 expense is worthy of being nitpicked and, and ultimately becomes a veto point in the preparations. And so I think we see the same dynamic again and again, right? With, with climate change, with other things. When climate change is still relatively abstract, relatively slow moving. It's like we can debate about it. We can question how much is too much and blah, blah, blah. As soon as Miami is flooded, no one's going to be arguing about whether we should help. Uh, and, and so uh, that's the dynamic that's very, very difficult to fight is how do you create the urgency that comes naturally with downstream work for, for work that could be preventative? Yeah. And, and that actually is the exact question that I mentioned earlier that I was, I, I wanted to ask because that is, even if you look at this, you know, and, and it sounds like, you know, the, the team that came together to, um, for the, the hurricane Pam preparation, they, they saw it coming. They were trying to address it upstream and, but how, how do you, when you're not feeling the, the, the pain of this actually happening? Yeah. I mean, why why is it that we as individuals as as societies as governments we just will not invest or it's not will not but it is rare that we will invest truly invest in finding upstream solutions until after the pain has become entirely real and massively more expensive than it would have been had we be able to prevent things if we I mean, is it just that human, the human brain is wired in a way where we just, for some reason, won't act until we're in the grips of the worst effects of a, of a cause that we might have been able to fix upstream? I think part of it is just 
you know, we, we've got a lot going on in our lives. We, yeah. we got, we got to pay the bills. We got to take care of our parents in the nursing home and we got kids to get to school. And, and it's like just our natural rhythms squeeze out a lot of our, our capacity to think about upstream problems. You know, if you think about it this way, how can you afford to be solving next year's problems when you're working on this week's problems? And so I think a lot of that is very understandable. I, I do want to say that, that we, despite the kind of psychological deck being loaded against us, we often succeed. So in the story, I, I, I in the book rather, I, I tell a story of, of the work on the ozone hole. And, and for a lot of us, that happened in our lifetimes. I and mean, they were talking mid eighties is when uh, the first agreement started to happen. And it's exactly like climate change in a lot of ways. There's this very abstract problem, hard to understand, you know, oh, what's this? I don't think most people have even heard of the ozone layer. And then it turns out that these chemicals called CFCs that are in your underarm spray deodorant, you know, can, it can erode the ozone layer. And, and, and so we had to go through a lot of the same cycle of, of educating people about what are these uh, invisible chemicals that erode this invisible layer that allows invisible rays to come down and give us skin cancer. And, but but it worked. We did something about it, you know, and, and this was during the Reagan administration. It's not like, you know, there were, you know, far left leadership in, in charge at that time. And, and it's not that the ozone layer has been uh, completely fixed. We just stopped digging our graves, basically. But but that's still something to be celebrated, I would think. And, and so there are times when when we come together and we think long term. And the question is, you know, can we recapture some of that? Like this pandemic, I think, was was a classic example of of an upstream problem that was entirely foreseeable. I mean, there are things, weird things that happen that we can't have expected people to have prepared for. This was not one of them. For decades, public health experts have been warning about exactly a scenario like this. And in fact, there have been several near misses in recent years with the swine flu and, and, and uh, the Ebola scare during the Obama administration and others. And, and we still didn't manage to do you know, the adequate amount of preparations that the public health leaders would, would have expected. And even when the outbreak started to happen, we still weren't in, in fifth gear you know, until the, the body started to pile up domestically. So, I mean, one, it, it's sort of like a half full, half empty thing. I mean, the, the half empty thing is it's a little bit depressing that it took, you know, the body count piling up for us to do something. The half full side is there really have been a lot of advances that, that have lessened the significance of this pandemic than if it had happened 50 years ago. I mean, the, the, the surveillance systems, for instance, not surveillance in like creepy Orwellian sense, but in terms of like disease tracking are incredibly sophisticated. The fact that we can, you know, be tracking a strain of the flu in countries all over the world, you know, in a matter of hours rather than months is, is spectacular. And the fact that we have, you know, these protocols and hospitals and, and ways of accommodating this and that uh, the supply chain can be responsive. I mean, all, all of these innovations have made us stronger in an upstream way, but there's still so far to go. Yeah. I wonder if we have a window here where the focus is on the immediate problem. And all the energy, all the effort, all the investment goes there. And then once we feel like we've got that, you know, however ever you define under control or on the, you know, on, on, on the right path to resolution, that I wonder if there's even a window that exists, sort of an afterburn effect there, where the 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 experience of, of what we have just come out of is so felt 
that it reminds us that there are other things out there in our personal lives or in society that are equally likely, it's just a matter of time that we've chosen not to address, that maybe the, the pain of this current experience activates a willingness to take those other things more realistically. And if we can, if we can start to address them within that window, then we start to gain momentum. Whereas if we just let the, you know, the, 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 the sort of afterburn effect of, of pain meets problem identification drift away, they would kind of lose it and drop back into complacency. Yeah, it, I, it, I agree. I, I mean, I like that. That's kind of the hopeful story in my mind is yeah. that even though uh, this is something none of us would have wished for this pandemic uh, and there will be horrible consequences. I mean, does it actually leave us stronger? It, have we been given a chance to to rehearse skills that may be even more urgently needed a, a few years down the road? And, and like you said, my hope is that we can abstract from this, that it's not just that this is the disaster of the week and we can move on next week to a different disaster, but, but rather can we extrapolate from that that, hey, we need, we need people who we can trust to be watching for these things and preparing for these things. You know, this is one reason why I think, I, I think it's difficult for me to imagine like bottoms up pressure on things like a pandemic response. You know, for all the reasons cited earlier, we've all got enough to deal with. We can't, you know, self-train to be, you know, pestering politicians for improving surveillance systems for the next pandemic. I think this is one where we really need uh, to trust professionals in institutions, whether those are government or NGOs or nonprofits. You know, we, we need to be giving a certain amount of trust and resources to people who are paying attention to pandemics every day and then and then trust what they say. Uh, you know, it's really not complicated. There were there were a lot of people who've been thinking about this pandemic for for many many years who had recommendations ready to go, and all we had to do was listen and arm them with the right tools to make those things happen. And, and we failed to do that this time, but maybe we'll get it right next time. And um, and while we're moving through that, you know, I think a lot of people might be sitting here saying, "Well, what can I individually do?" Well, maybe there's not a direct role in in this, but I think just if you take the concept of upstream thinking and you just look at and apply it in the context of your own life and just kind of ask the questions, well, what are the things that I'm feeling now or I have felt that have repeated and, and the outcomes that, you know, I, I, I hoped to get that I'm not getting um, and they keep happening. You know, what if instead of like, is this the type of problem where instead of focusing on just fixing it when it happens, if I can look upstream, like, is there some sort of further down or further upstream origin for this, where if I fix that, if I address that, then I don't have to deal with any of these downstream effects, you know, for a yeah. long time. Well, and I, I feel like I should also say, I mean, I think because we're, when we recorded this, we're in the midst of the quarantine. I, I think I'm probably expressing more pessimism than is actually in the book. I mean, this is a book of of solutions. This is a book of of extraordinary upstream victories that have been won. So, so even as we're realistic about all the barriers that are in our way, I mean, the, the point of this thing was to say, hey, we can jump over these hurdles and we have done it and let's pay attention to how we've done it so we can do it again. Like here's one of my favorite examples. There is a, a European nation that has basically eliminated the problem of teenage alcohol and substance abuse. I mean, 
of all the things that people would have bet against as a proposition, you know, we would have thought we live in a world where forevermore teenagers will abuse drugs and alcohol. But Iceland, uh, over a period of about 15 years, has almost eliminated it. I mean, to the point where if you look at stats on number of teenagers drunk in the last 30 days, number of teenagers who have uh, experimented with marijuana, number of teenagers who chain smoke, I mean, it's single digits just extraordinary. I mean, to the point where it's it's kind of weird now in uh, Icelandic teenage culture if someone is like a binge drinker or, or a frequent drug user. And they did this with explicit upstream uh, intent. They got together a group of politicians and academics and, and parents and, and school leaders. And what they all had in common was the desire to see teenagers free from this. And, and so the first thing they did was they said, okay, well, let's figure out what are the factors that protect kids from drugs and alcohol? What are the factors that exacerbate it? And they just kind of approached it scientifically. And, and one of the theories that they bought into very early was this idea that the teenagers are going to be persuaded by just say no and those sorts of campaigns, like that, that the idea is you just, when confronted with drugs or alcohol, you're just going to be the heroic one that says, no, no, I'm, I'm above that. Uh, was wrongheaded, that that in fact it was more fruitful to think, what would an environment look like for a teenager where drugs and alcohol actually seem like not that great of a choice? Like what if teenagers were actually having so much fun and thriving in other ways that they kind of just didn't feel like getting drunk? I mean, what an extraordinary way to reframe the situation. And this is partly based on the research of a, an American academic named Harvey Milkman, who says that, that teenagers love highs, like all of us do. And drugs and alcohol provide a kind of insta high. I mean, you, you, all you got to do is take a drug and boom. But he says, so if you want teenagers to do something else, you can't fight their instinct for highs. That's built in. But you can provide them avenues for natural highs. And so they started doing things like, in Iceland, it's common to go to sports clubs after school. So, you know, you, you finish up a school day and you go over to something that's it's kind of like a more professionalized version of a YMCA or something where you can learn uh, better skills at soccer or handball or gymnastics or whatever. But they started to professionalize this in a way to up the stakes. So it wasn't just, you know, a bunch of kids shooting hoops uh, down, down the corner. It was, you know, there's a former soccer national champion who's your coach and he expects a lot out of you and every day you're stretching and learning and you're competing at the highest levels and and what that does is it's an environment that produces natural highs so so back to the chain of of kind of collaborators here you figure out that everybody's got a piece of the puzzle like the people at the clubs they professionalize their work and the politicians they authorized what amounted to a gift card for each family to spend more on, on training and instruction to give students more avenues for natural highs. And the school leaders, you know, figured out ways that they could bus kids from the school to the clubs to make that easier and, and on and on and on. And it's like everybody has a piece of the puzzle. But when everybody is aligned toward the same goal and when everybody realizes uh, what a difference it would make to create a world like this, it kept them moving. And, and these days, as I said, I mean, the, the, the trend lines and the graphs are just, it's one of the few graphs that you get an emotional response looking at. You just see them plunging and you realize how many thousands of lives have been changed as a result of this. Yeah, I love that. I love that we're sort of like leaving it in this place of, no, like this is, this is really interesting wisdom and there's a lot of hope 
behind it. Um, and I think awareness of just taking this approach to looking at situations and problems is a, is a great starting point. It feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. So I'm gonna ask you a question I always round the corner with everybody. So we're sitting here in this container of the Good Life Project. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? I think for me, it's about the ripple effects of your life, you know, the um, uh, the ripples that go outward from the way you lived your life and how they affect the people you love, your family, your friends, um, the people in your neighborhood, the people in your community, maybe, maybe if you're lucky outside that even, that, that, that we in some ways can be defined by the positive ripple effects we leave. Did we leave this place better than we found it? Maybe there's some upstream spirit in that. Mm, I love it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a fun conversation. Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.